you know, our board works with us, not against us. And I've seen that kind of fail a number of times in my career where as companies are scaling and they're taking on additional funding and their board is growing, they get mission misaligned because of the structure of the governance of the board, because the board is no longer tied to that primary mission. Hey everyone, and welcome to Conversations with Bacon. It's a, it's great to have you here. I hope you're having a, a wonderful 2021. So, I'm really, really thrilled to bring on to the podcast today, Gillian Huffnagel. How are you doing, Gillian? I'm fantastic. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So, we're going to be talking about culture today, which is always one of my favorite subjects. But let me first of all get into the rap sheet because you've had a really, really interesting career. You know, you used to be a teacher many moons ago, and then you went on to be an executive assistant to the CEO at 38 Studios, at Rapid7, at Duo Security. Uh, you went on to then be a chief of staff to the CEO. You're at CloudLock, which is now part of Cisco, um, uh, chief of staff also at Duo Security. Um, and you've, there's a common thread through all of this, which is a real focus on the importance of of delivering an effective culture, this kind of manifested to to great degree in your own business, where you see where you CEO of your own business and have, have, have supported many different companies. But the way in which we met is that you're head of culture at Slim.ai, and the little bit of backstory for for listeners here. So, I got a good friend called Ed Sim. Um, he's a VC, is at Bold Start, uh, and Ed called me one day and said, look, you got to meet this guy called John Amaral, who is is the CEO of a company called Slim. They're doing some really interesting work. They want to build a community. And that's how we got connected, Jillian. We had a really great first call and we've been working together um, on, on the Slim community. And the thing that really blew me away, I've been consulting for, for many years. I've worked with hundreds of different companies. And a lot of companies talk a big game about wanting the right kind of culture, about wanting the right kind of community and, and really building a genuine relationship with their customers. And I have rarely seen it manifest so deeply and so focused in what I've seen at Slip. Uh, and and I think you are to to, to a significant degree the, the credit for that. So I was really impressed. So I remember when we first met, I said, like, I got to have you on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're doing amazing work. So first of all, I love what you're doing. I'm a big fan. Um, I want to get that off my chest first of all. But what I really want to understand, and I think what my listeners will want to understand is, is how, because culture is, it's a complicated concept. It's a complicated, um, you can't mandate it on people. You can't dictate it to people. So let's zoom out. First of all, what do you think are some of the most fundamental elements that go into a great culture? I think first and foremost, it, it has to begin at, at the leadership level, it has to be something that is like foundational to who that human is. The, the founder, the co-founder, the CEO, the individual who is seen as the beacon of, of the North Star for the organization, that person has to eat, sleep, and breathe what they believe is right in terms of how to show up in the workplace and how to show up in the world. And so there needs to be a deep alignment between their core values as a human and the values they espouse in the workplace. Um, I've worked for a ton of startups, as you mentioned, and, and I think one of the things that has always been really important to me is 
how do I affect culture from the seat that I am in? And it has become apparent to me, partnering with many high-functioning, high-capacity CEOs and leadership teams, that there's nothing that anyone in the organization can do if the primary leader or leaders do not embody the values in every interaction that they have, not only with the company, not only with the people, with the community, with the vendors, with the suppliers, with the ecosystem. Um, if that is not genuine, if that is not authentic, you, you can't create a, a, a culture that will endure. Mm. It, it, it's tricky though, isn't it? Because uh, I remember, for example, when I, when I, when I first met John, who, as I mentioned, is is the CEO of, at Slim. Um, this is going to sound potentially arrogant, and it's not meant to, but I could tell within a few minutes that his approach and his um, his deafness towards the topic of culture was was there. Uh, it's kind of like an intuition, and and usually I found that my intuition with people tends to. There are there's been some outliers, but generally tends to be right. Is that you know the, once I really get to know them, it my initial kind of gut check tends to resonate with that ultimate conclusion. Um, and I think some people don't necessarily have that sense of intuition towards that. How would you for people who get it for those leaders who really do understand culture and they do it in what you define as the right way? Do you have some examples of some like practical ways in which some someone who struggles with that intuition in seeing that how would how would you explain it to them? I think the easiest way to kind of boil it down is is the concept of of do what I do and do what I say, right? So if you as a leader are showing up and saying do as I say and you are not doing as you do, that's a very clear indicator that that leader either has not built out what they believe is the right kind of foundation to their culture, whether it's their core values, their principles, their mission, their tenant, um, oftentimes it's just missing. Oftentimes they haven't done the work to sit down and do the Simon Sinek, what is our why? Why do we exist in the world as an organization? And I see that that's a common breaking point from very early on in organizations. If, if it is unclear why the organization exists in the world in the first place, and the leaders are not passionately tied to that at every level of their being, then the alignment doesn't exist down the organization. And so oftentimes it's not whether or not they're capable, it's that they simply haven't done the work to sit down and do their why. So, you know, at Slim, our mission is to help application developers create, build, and deploy their cloud-native app native applications. If the, their native they belong to the developer, and and we seek to remove friction, complexity, and waste from that experience. So, if we as at Slim question every single decision that we make to say, "Are we removing friction?" Then we're embodying our mission. Hmm. And so, for us, it's easy because every single staff member, every single investor, every single vendor in our ecosystem, we expect them to question whether or not we're removing friction. And I guess where it gets tricky, though, isn't it, is often I've, when I've worked with companies, there's kind of, you, you do that kind of those first principles pieces of work where you talk about your values and your mm -hmm. mission and your your um, your broader goal and, and what value you bring into the world. 
And then when people start getting into the nitty gritty of frameworks and platforms and and hiring and and all this kind of stuff, it, it gets lost in the mix a little bit and people often forget that. And then they have to be reminded and brought back to the you know, to the mantle where those those commitments were made. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm guessing that you're going to say the really effective leaders are always keeping that front and center, are always keeping that focused. What do you think is the differentiator in people not forgetting those core principles that, that keeps them focused on that mission? I think for me, it goes to this concept of empowerment. I think, I think empowerment is misunderstood and misused frequently in the workplace. I don't have the capability or the authority to empower you. I can create an environment in which you have all of the tools, all the skills, all the resources, all of the context that you need to make thoughtful and educated decisions and then feel empowered to make them. Right? So, at Slim, and John and I believe this deeply, we've actually, uh, we worked with each other previously at CloudLock and then through Cisco. And, and John and I and, and Kyle, our co-founder, believe that leaders are everywhere in our business. And so if we believe that everyone in our organization is a leader, whether it's in their expertise, in their function, in their abilities, then they are in an environment in which the leader you know, the pulpit head, the CEO doesn't need to give them authority. They have it within their role. And if that authority is built out based on competency and certification of competency, if you hire people who are competent and you give them context, then they have the ability to take control and make decisions at all levels. And so when you say the leader needs to be there constantly reminding, part of it is in the cultural rituals of how we behave. Um, you know, we open our Monday staff meeting every Monday to, to say, hey, did anyone remove friction for someone else? Let's talk about that. Mm. What did that look and feel like for you? And so we use um, this concept of, of communicating actively friction removal and learning in our daily ritual as a business. That's that's interesting because often a lot of businesses are really focused on okay how are we producing value right like how are we creating new widgets that we can sell um, in the world and it sounds like a big chunk of this is okay well part of the part of the the, the product that we're building here is reducing friction not just for customers but also with each also with each other I imagine that's that's pretty non intuitive. Uh, for, again, for, for 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 a lot of people, how what what's your thinking when it comes down to reducing friction versus creating new value? Because I think with so many companies, everything's all about are we shipping? Are we shipping? Are we shipping? Are we doing things? Are we creating things? But sometimes you need to take time away from that to then reduce friction elsewhere. How do you think you get that balance right, especially with the of a company that is high performance and wanting to ship constantly? Yeah, and, and thank you for that question because I think it's an important one. And so if if part of our, our mission is to remove friction, we actually codify that in our values, that it is it is something that every employee is supposed to be doing at all times. So if we're continuously identifying and removing friction, then in theory, we move faster, right? Um, the The break-fix mode goes significantly faster because – we create an environment where everything gets on the table the second it's identified. And we can 
speak about the opportunities in front of us when things are broken or when things could be improved versus having a ridiculous backlog of wish lists of things that that could or should get done. And so we build into our operating rhythm not only time to discuss, but time to ideate on how to make that better. And that's just not, that's not only in our tools and our, and our processes. That's at all levels. That's, that's at the human capital level. You know, we're an asynchronous organization. And in today's world, that's where, that's where most companies are going. We hire anywhere in the world and we hire talent because they're passionate about developing cool stuff. They're passionate about helping other developers worldwide. And they believe in this concept of democratizing knowledge for all developers. And, and at the core of who we are, we are open source. We, we love developers. We want to make their lives easier. And so while I myself am not a technical developer, I mean, I know some basic HTML and WYSIWYG stuff. I'm, I'm a human developer. And so I'm responsible for removing friction for the experience of the people. And that goes into our HRAS tool, that goes into our payroll, our finance, our recruiting process. Um, you know, we don't have mistakes in our organization. We only have learning. Right, right. It, it, it's, it's interesting because I think there's kind of, um, there's two pieces here, which I think are fascinating which I'd like to pull the thread on both of them. One is, is this concept of friction and what that means and how you identify it. And then the second is this all seems to be within a bubble around being of service, which, mm-hmm. you know, Seth Godin talks about, and I'll, I'll never forget when I first met, read um, Seth Godin talking about this concept of if you are of service to people, then good things will happen to you. Um, but I want to come back to that in a, in a second. But when it comes to that friction, I, I'm a I, I worship at the same church because I think when you reduce friction for other people, you you can do better work, you can build better relationships. There's all kinds of different benefits that can kind of come out of that. But for someone who's new at this, how would you how would you identify what friction is, and how do they how do they go about reducing it? Like, can you give? I don't know if you've got a practical example or something that you'd recommend for someone to start that process of building that culture of identifying friction. Uh, and 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 reducing it. I like that. I like that we're pulling on this thread because because this is an important one. How do you operationalize this concept within an organization? And I think a good example of that is starting at the core of the fact that we are all humans, and humans are messy, and we are never always our best selves. And so I'm going to say that again because it's important. Yeah, I've worked for organizations where one of their values is be kinder than necessary and assume positive intent. Well, while at the top of the pulpit, that sounds right. That is actually really easy to operationalize in the wrong way. So when I think about operationalizing the fact that humans are messy and you should be potentially assuming positive intent, the reality is, is that if you look at it from the perspective of every single person, has value to bring. And every single person is mission aligned. Then there's never an assumption that how they're approaching it is negative. Right. Essentially, it's aligned on what good is, right? Or aligned on what the, the definition of the mission is. Is that correct? 
Right. And so when, when we chart our core values, our first value is to fulfill our mission. Right. So not only are we abundantly clear about what our mission is and why we exist in the world, it's actually part of our values. And so when we think about like continuously identifying and removing friction as a value, that's in every conversation. And so one of the things that goes underneath that is the willingness and the, and the intent around setting your ego aside. Mm. And so one of the things we talk about regularly as a team is we don't want to do things the same way we've done them before for the sake of repeating simply because it was successful previously. Right. Yeah. We talk openly about we don't know what we don't know. We are a team of like insanely curious people. So when something comes in front of us as an opportunity, it's like a pack of wolves diving in on meat. Like we're all like, let's figure this out. This is so much fun. I'm so curious. I tried it this way and it didn't work. So what did you do? Right. And it's that dialogue. I I had this conversation with a friend of mine the other day and they they were really shocked. They're like, how are you going to scale this? Right. How are you going to scale this? Because as, as your organization grows, you can't touch every employee. And, you know, I said, one of the ways we're scaling it is we're building it into everything that we do. Every conversation that we have, every message that's sent on Discord is, you know, gratitude for people questioning each other. Mm. Right. Thank you so much for asking me why I'm taking this approach. I really do want to hear if there's another way to do this. That gratitude for having the dialogue that could potentially remove friction and create a nif- a different path forward. Yeah. Right. And so if we continue on that path, what I was saying is there's this concept of when you're in hyper growth mode, and I've been in quite a few hyper growth organizations where you're moving at breakneck pace, um, it's really easy to lose sight of how you connect with each other at the human level, how you communicate with each other at the human level. And so what often happens is friction is avoided in exchange for pace of execution. And when you change pace of execution with the the necessity to sometimes slow down in order to go faster later, you're leaving value on the table. Right. And so when you think about this concept of like, how do we talk about value? Do we have KPIs? Absolutely. Do we have OKRs? 100%. We use Workboard and we absolutely love the tool. Um, for anyone out there who's thinking about doing an OKR platform, o- Workboard is hands down my, my favorite tool. But it's not just that they're my favorite tool, they're my favorite team. So when I think about how Slim exists in the world and what our mission is, we also seek to partner with other vendors and other individuals and other communities that have the same high standards that we do. So when I look at how the workboard team is run and how their CEO cascades up and down their business and how she is constantly weaving intent and communication into all the things that they do, I can talk to an individual contributor seven layers down in that business and I still know why they exist. Right. Yeah. I think what's fascinating about this as well is that some of the most pleasurable people that we work with um, are able to be in a meeting where you're in a meeting with them. And there's a focus of the meeting. We're talking about, you know, a a new part of the plan or a new part of the strategy or solving a problem or whatever it might be. And those people who you work with who who are able to take a step back and say, okay, well, why don't we take a look at at the bigger vision of what we're trying to do here in a way that's not 
taking us away from what we're trying to solve here, but is supplementary to it and complementary to it. Um, and uh, it reminds me a little bit of in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, where Covey talks about things that are, you know, we, about the urgent and important quadrant. Mm-hmm. And that we often forget about the things that um, are not urgent, but they are important. And it strikes me that what you're talking about, Gillian, here is, is that that's not an exercise you do once a quarter or, <laughs> or whatever it might be. That's something you do on a week-to-week basis because the things that aren't urgent but are important are often where the real value, the real juice, the real relationships get formed. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, when you talk about like the operating rhythm of, of evaluating and discussing where we are towards success – what we do is we certainly set goals and we work towards them. We actually design six-week OKR cycles because of that necessity to move faster. Most organizations set objectives for an annual cycle and then they do quarterly KRs. We, we have our annual objectives. We know what they are. We know what our North Star is. Our North Star is our mission. We're always rowing towards our North, North Star. What we do is we plan fiscally at the quarter level in terms of, you know, budgets and hiring and things like that. And then we do KRs at the, at the six week mark. And we also not only do the OKRs at the six week mark, but we interact with our board every six weeks and they are actively involved in the operationalization and growth of the organization, which is also something that's a little bit different. Um, you know, our board works with us, not against us. And I've seen that kind of fail a number of times in my career where as companies are scaling and they're taking on additional funding and their board is growing, they get mission misaligned because of the structure of the governance of the board, because the board is no longer tied to that primary mission. And so that's also something that we're setting up at scale is how we grow our board with the same level of intent that we grow our internal team. And all of our vendors, you know, you're a perfect example of that. We wouldn't work with someone of your stature and your experience if you didn't live and breathe the same values that we do, right? Mm. You said you worship at the same church, (laughs) right? So when we think about that and we think about who we associate our brand with, that's actually a very intentful choice too. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think I think it's I think it's it's just it's fascinating. And one thing I do want to get into a little bit today, because the thing I think people often wrestle with with these kinds of conversations, and I'm just trying to think for my listeners here, is um, this all sounds great, but I've got a business and I've got people who don't think like this, who, or I've got people who will take advantage of these kinds of ways of working. And I'd like to get into that in in a moment, because I think you'll be able to offer some really great guidance on that. But I do want to talk about this concept of service, because like, just again, to go back, I remember reading Seth Godin. So people who are not familiar with Seth Godin, he's a he's kind of a marketing gu- I don't like to use the word marketing guru because often marketing gurus are these cheesy people who are trying to sell you get-rich-quick schemes, but <clears throat> he's a marketing expert. And and he, I think what I admire about his approach is that he's not trying to give you um, all of these cheap hacks and techniques for getting doing better marketing. He goes back to the philosophy and the fundamentals of of, of the way in which you do it right. And he talks about mm-hmm. service. Service is critical. Is that if you can identify how you can bring value to other people, how you can serve them well, 
how you can invest yourself in their success, then by doing so, all of the things that you want will happen. Like you'll, mm-hmm. you'll get the success that you want. You'll get the respect that you want. You'll earn plenty of cash, all that kind of stuff. And this is infused so much into what you're doing at Slim. And, and clearly this has been infused in, in, in your work prior to Slim as well. But how do you think you go about building a service mindset? Because some people are just naturally of service to other people, right? You know, mm-hmm. any of that comes back and, and that's kind of the, the way they're wired up. But there's many people who are very invested in themselves and their own situation, their own success. How do you encourage people who are in that m- mental model to switch to a more service-oriented mental model? Yeah, I think a flavor of it is the service-oriented model, but I would take it a step further. John and I were actually talking about this uh, like two or three weeks ago. We were talking about the the concept of the four agreements, um, the primary one being be impeccable with your word. Um, the second being don't take anything personally. The third, don't make assumptions. And the fourth, always do your best. And so when I think about being in service to other humans, I think about those four things as being the primary approach to that. Because if I am impeccable with my word, then I say what I mean and I mean what I say and I behave that way. If I don't take anything personally, then it creates psychological safety for others to be themselves. If I don't make assumptions, then I am open to new opportunities and different ways of looking at things. And if I always do my best, then I accept the fact that what I gave today was enough. And I think that's fundamentally broken in a lot of organizations. Um, So when you say you're in service to other people, there's a caveat around being in service where you have to be in service to yourself first. Right. I want to push on this really hard because this is one of the reasons why when, when John called me up and said, come on this wild ride with me, you know, we, we debated for some time about whether or not we would, we would be able to, to operationalize in a practical way, having balance in the workplace. Because we both work for a lot of startup organizations, a lot of hyper growth, fast paced companies that, you know, who have had, you know, billion dollar exits, right? Yeah. And one of the things that we believe deeply is that we need to have wellness at the human level, at the forefront of who we are as people. And so if one of our teammates loves surfing and the waves are great today, we expect that they're going to make the decision on their own to determine whether or not they're going to go hit the waves and then do their work later. Right. Um, if we have If we have a team member who has commitments to his or her family, and you know they they vowed to never miss their kids' soccer games, then we expect that they're going to protect that calendar to ensure that they never miss a soccer game. Yeah, yeah. And so when we when we talk about this concept of like always doing your best, you have to do your best for yourself too. You need to focus on your personal human at your core to ensure that you're the best in the workplace too. Yeah. And then you can truly be in service to others. Uh, one thing that strikes me here is that um, I think a lot of this can be through the lens that you look at the world, right? That mm-hmm. um, if you have joined a company and, you know, let's say, just to paint a picture of something, let's say 
there's a hundred people in this company. There's a really tight knit culture. Uh, so there's a lot of kind of like pre-existing history, some in jokes, things like that. And you join, you're starting out in your career. You're, you're, you know, this is a good opportunity. Uh, you're self-conscious of, of, of the fact that you might not know enough. You maybe have a lot of imposter syndrome. Um, and you, you, you're operating in this company where there is a culture that if the waves are good, you could go off and, you know, catch them. I don't even know what that would mean. I am the least surfing person on this planet. <laughs> um, I just fall over and drown, I think. Um, but presuming that you're there and the company's set up so you can make that choice, but you've got this thing inside of you that says, am I doing this wrong? Is it inappropriate for me to do this? Um, how do you wrestle that? Because I have this the same concern in many ways with unlimited PTO. I've worked with companies where they've got unlimited PTO. And in many cases, people actually don't take any PTO or they take less PTO because almost not having the rule book where you're putting that responsibility or that opportunity on the individual means that sometimes people can just react by not doing anything. And then they don't take any time off because they, they're worried that they're going to be violating some unwritten rule that exists. Um, do you have any thoughts, Gillian, on how to go about providing that sense of confidence? I know, obviously, that you've got to have the culture forming around it every day and reinforcing that. But when you've got that kind of imposter syndrome that can ex that can manifest in people, yeah. So I think that goes back to to the psychological safety that I mentioned earlier. Before is when the behavior is modeled and you observe it, it creates a safe space for you. So when when you see your leaders of whether it's your department or your function or your team, when you see them taking time off and you see them, you know, uh, celebrating the fact that they went and participated in a hackathon or they're celebrating the fact that they're participating in a volunteer organization that is really, you know, important to their soul, uh, it creates that safety for you as an individual to try those things. And when you do try them, they are welcomed and they are celebrated. And so therefore it kind of creates this what we like to call a virtuous cycle. Our virtuous cycle weaves throughout our organization and it's always around this concept of continuously learning and continuously sharing. And that doesn't just mean around the things that we're learning on the product side. That means like the things that we're learning on the human side. And so, you know, at Slim, you know, we build it into our handbook. We specifically say we trust that our employees are going to regularly take time off not just to rest and relax, but to adventure, to learn, to create, right? And that it's up to them to have the dialogue with their manager and their team. We hire competent, capable people and we give them an environment to thrive. And so anyone who steps a foot into our proverbial door feels that. I mean, you felt that, right? Um, you know, we are human first. And, and we create these opportunities for humans to have balance. And Going back to what I said before about humans being messy, I mean, by the time we hit 30, we're like pre-wired with hundreds of millions of lines of code of bad habits and bad thoughts and bad beliefs, you know, things that aren't necessarily serving us. And, and it, at Slim, we create an environment where we're constantly questioning the things we think we know. And that breaks down a lot of those fears of, am I right? Because guess what? It doesn't matter if you're right. It matters if you tried and you learned from it. Yeah. 
it, it, I think what's so fascinating about this is your, your example there <clears throat> about your handbook where, you know, the tradition for many businesses, time immemorial is, okay, you get 10 days off or you get 20 days off a year. And it's the allocation. It's a single line. Here's the allocation. Here's where you go to go and file your PTO. Whereas you're saying the expectation here, we're not telling you a specific number of days. Um, we're saying this is the intent. Is your clarity in the intent, and then that, like you say, gives them, gives your employees the ability to then make their own decision around that. But an, another thing that I do want to tease on here, uh, or pull on rather, is this example that's set by leadership. You know, one of the things I've often talked about in my work is that, and often, you know, when I'm doing interviews or on podcasts and whatever, people will say like, "How do you, how do you create good community leaders?" Where do they come from? How do we find them? And I often say, um, people mimic other. I mean, this is well known. People psychologically mimic their leaders. So if you get a, you know, a despotic leader, then you can often get people who act that in that manner around them. Especially in businesses where people feel like you need to be despotic in it, 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 to succeed. Mm-hmm. When you have the inverse of that, and you have kind, caring, empathetic people who recognize failure in themselves. And, and 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 grow from it that just tends to it just tends to rub off on people mm-hmm. um but i i would also go so far as to say that um people who really manifest that personality tend to be rarer uh um but then if you so john is a good example of this like in the meetings that i've been in with with, with john he just has got this very just open transparent personality like he he's not screwing around he wants to get down to business and do the work well but the approach and the the method that he uses i can see people wanting to mimic because mm-hmm. uh, it's the right way of doing things <clears throat> so i guess my question here is um how do you do that at scale like you've got you've got a small team of people at slim today who i have met uh, 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 the right people in that position. But if Slim was to ever grow to a thousand people, then not everybody's going to necessarily be like that. Um, what are your thoughts on how you build that out in scale so you can continue to instill those that method where people can really focus on um, bringing that healthy human spirit into the company? Mm-hmm. Well, I think part of it is being clear about who we are and who we are not, right? So, so one of the things that's really important when you think about hiring into this type of culture is we need to, we need to be honest with the fact that it's impossible to hire perfectly all the time. And that we also understand and are completely comfortable with the fact that this type of work environment is not for everyone. Right. Right. So, so our approach is like to continuously interact and observe and adjust. And so if we have a team member who is not aligned with behavior from a values perspective, we see that it's our responsibility to strive to help develop them as an individual, to provide them more context so that they can thrive, to bring to bear learning and development for them as an individual, right? Not canned management training off of some like lame, dusty shelf, right? (laughs) Really helping develop them as an individual. And then be comfortable with the fact that even if we've done that work to provide them that space to grow, if it's still not a good fit, 
we're going to love them on the way out just as much as we love them on the way in. And I think this is something that's critically important is if we're a thousand people and we have turnover at 2%, that tells me that everything that we've tried to build right now has been able to grow, propagate, and and disseminate. Yeah. Yeah. Right? We're not going to be in a position where we're hitting that standard SaaS turnover rate of 28% per year. That's insane. Right. You know, you know how much money companies lose? Lose. Like hand over fist money with employee turnover simply because they're not impeccable about their mission. They're not impeccable about their values. They're not impeccable about how they treat each other. That's what creates that turnover. Yeah. Humans are completely comfortable with chaos, provided that you create psychological safety for them. You know, this kind of gets me thinking of something else, which has been kind of a topic that's been rumbling around Silicon Valley for a while, which is what the role of your employees is in your broader business. So for example, Google have struggled with this, where there's been a lot of fire and flame within Google with employees having a certain set of expectations in terms of not just their influence on the business, but also how much they can bring the outside world into the business, especially when it comes to um, diversity and inclusion uh, and pol- political topics uh, that are outside of what Google are doing. Now, obviously, diversity inclusion is, is is a key component of how all businesses should operate. But do you have any thoughts, Gillian, on where the line is drawn there? Because I can imagine some people listen to this and thinking, well, I want to make sure that my employees feel fully engaged in changing and influencing the culture of my business. Mm-hmm. But at some point, we need to make a decision and say, like, this is the way the company operates. Um, and they may be struggling to kind of get a sense of, again, where that line is drawn. How, how, how would you think, what do you think about that? I would hands down start with Cy Wakeman's book called No Ego and her other book called Reality-Based Rules in the Workplace. Okay. Um, so, so Cy Wakeman is, you know, she's, I'm her fangirl. She's one of my favorite thought <laughs> leaders in the market. Um, I also adore Patrick Lencioni and, and David Marquet. So, so if you want to really think about like where a lot of these foundations come from, for me, the things that we're talking about today, um, it's, it's Cy, it's Patrick, it's David Marquet, and it's, um, uh, Dr. Howard Cutler. He wrote a book, um, The Art of Happiness. He, he co-authored it with the Dalai Lama. So a lot of the things we're talking about today come from the foundations of those teachings of other people. Um, and, and when I, when I think about Cy Wakeman's teaching, she says, and I fully agree, that change management is BS. Interesting. That there is no change management, right? I, we as an organization do not exist to make you feel good about the fact that the business has made a decision and is moving in a different direction. Hmm. What we do need to do is be clear about which direction we're going. We need to be clear when that shifts. And then we need to create an opportunity for employees to be ready for that change, right? And so what, what she calls it is business readiness. Right. So if we go back to the mission, Slim doesn't exist to give you a paycheck. Slim doesn't exist to give you a job. Slim exists to fulfill its mission. Right. And we're going to have awesome humans helping us do that. If you go off mission, if you go off value, if you go off principle, we're here to talk about it. We're here to support you. And when you've made the decision that that's not for you anymore, then the change occurs with great respect and great reverence and deep intent. 
Yes. Right. Yeah. And so, and so I, I think that that's really the differentiator. If you as an organization, I'll use the, the one I referenced before, this concept of assuming positive intent. That is often an excuse for bad behavior. Right. And yeah. so if someone is showing up the worst version of themselves and you don't have a culture in which it's safe to pull that person aside and say, hey, A, I care about you and B, you're, you know what's hanging out and you, you look like a baboon. Like you're just <laughs> showing up poorly. Like you're running around. You're, you're not the best version of yourself. What do you need right now? How do we help you? Right? Right. If it doesn't exist in your culture, we're at the peer level. People can be like, hey, you said something in that meeting today. And like, I doubt you intended it negatively, but here's how it sounded to me. If that exists at the IC level, you're going to be hugely successful. Right. So this concept of like creating safety for communication at all levels and essentially removing escalation paths around human communication issues, that's where you move a significant amount of friction in your business. Yeah, I guess a tricky thing there. I agree with you. I, I love the way you think about this, Jillian. Um because again, it kind of gets down to these these first principles of 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 of, of taking the right approach of, of infusing the right kind of ingredients into the mix. Mm -hmm. But I guess where it gets tricky is, especially for example, with something like politics, where people get so passionate and so invested, and a, a big chunk of their personal identity is is um, wrapped into their 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 view of a particular of a particular topic. Mm -hmm. How would you approach, if, in the case of a heated situation where, let's say, you've got two employees and they're just gunning at each other because they've got different political viewpoints? Mm -hmm. um, how would you de-escalate that? So, if it, if it if it got to that level of tension, so you know, the foundation of Patrick Lencioni's high-performing team is is trust, and trust comes from authentic vulnerability, and. For me, authentic vulnerability is my ability to use my lived and learned experience to create empathy and understanding. So in this particular case, I would use my personal experience. My parents are, are one political view and myself and, and, my, and my other half are another. We have a 16-year-old daughter who struggles to have a conversation with my parents, right? And so... How do I create empathy and understanding in, in a heated conversation between my mother and my daughter, right? They clearly love each other, yet they're on the opposite sides of understanding and perspective, you know? And so, and so what, I, what I would do is I would say, what's the outcome we're driving for, right? And, and you know, if we both agree or all three of us, or all four of us, or all 10 of us agree on what the outcome that we're driving for is, and that's clear, can we all agree that there's like a hundred different paths to get to it? Right? And if we can all agree that there's lots of different ways to get to the outcome, and we can define what good looks like at the outcome level, can we be more accepting of the fact that our idea is one of a hundred and it's not always going to get selected. Yes. Yeah. Right. And I think the other thing that's really important is 
we have to model the behavior of thank you for questioning me. Thank you for asking me why I would approach something that way. Mm. Thank you for calling it out that it was unclear what my intent was, right? Yeah. I had this happen last week. You know, I, I was talking in our team meeting and I, I, I was talking about something and an individual on our team reached out to me afterward and said, hey, you know, when you said that it sounded like X, Y, and Z. And I said, oh man, that wasn't my intent. How do we address All that? Right. Yeah. Right? And so being able to have that, that willingness to listen, right? Knowing that everyone is a leader, being willing to honor and celebrate everyone's individuality of expression. And that's a tough one, right? You're right. Um, a lot of organizations use like emotional quotient tools to help folks understand each other. And there's a ton out on the market today. My favorite is DISC um, because it's just really simply simple to, to use. Um, DISC is very similar to Insights Profiles, which is very similar to Predictive Index, which is very similar to the, the four colors. And a lot of them are built off of the same framework as, as Myers-Briggs, with, which has 16 personality types, right? Right. Yeah. So, so emotional quotient tools help us figure out what quad, quadrant other people tend to start in, right? Yeah. They do not describe the, the beautiful uniqueness and complexity of humans. What they do is they create a shared understanding of where each, essentially where each corner of the room people tend to start in. Right, whether or not you're introverted or you're extroverted, whether or not you tend to be task focused versus people focused, whether or not you tend to need time to think about things or you're ready to just throw spaghetti at the wall, right? So, creating a shared understanding of people's base kind of profiles can actually be a really useful tool in larger organizations. Yeah. I've seen I've seen companies do things like. You know, in their Microsoft Teams, they have their personality type listed. In their in their Slack, they have their personality type listed. In their email signature, they have their personality type listed. Interesting. And so what this does is it creates safety for someone who's brand new to communicating with you. You're like, hey, let me help you out. I happen to be highly extroverted and super people focused. So like if I'm a loud cheerleader too much, you let me know. Right. Right. And, and that other person might be very quiet, very cerebral. And so I might be overbearing to them. That's a fascinating, I, I'd never heard of that before. That's a fascinating idea. Um, because yeah, I think in many cases, it, you have to kind of decode that you have to figure this out. And I think many people who tend to be successful in working with people, of, of being able to hone that skill and are able to get a sense of how they tend to operate, how they, you know, what their intrinsic and extrinsic motivations are there. And then they can adapt the way in which they work with them to what they've figured out. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think a lot of people really struggle with that and, and aren't able to figure it out, figure it out. And then it can, it can, it can generate some, some challenges there. Yeah. Um, so I know we're kind of we're getting into the tail end of this uh, this discussion, which I wish we could continue, frankly, for hours because I can't wait eventually, Jillian, where we can actually sit in the same room with a glass of wine. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, that's one of the one of the things I love about about working with so many people is is that social environment, sitting down and just and just talking about the world. And it's and we we're, we've been sadly unable to do that, obviously, because of COVID. 
but we will one day. But one thing I'd love to kind of bring this into the into the finish line with is a sense of what do you think are the priorities that you would like to see manifest in in with with people who are listening to this who want to build a culture like this who who need their own Jillian mm-hmm. in there to go and help with this what do you think are the most important things that people need to focus on to do that and ideally some some practical techniques or 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 exercises that they can go through where they can start instilling the kind of the values and the approach that you're taking with slim into their own businesses and especially just to make this as complicated as possible for you um especially like based upon what you're seeing people not doing where the deficit is in when people are building great culture yeah what should they focus on i think two core foundations in the workplace would be um conveying your intent right so it's this concept of like you know people don't necessarily hear the words that you're saying they hear what they believe you're trying to say and and part of that's tone part of its pace part of its body language most of it is actually how you physically sound and how you physically show up that's degraded a little bit now that most work organizations are, are asynchronous due to having to work remotely. So you miss a little bit in body language and tone. So, so being able to convey your intent and say like, you know, thank you for being patient with me. I need to take a minute to help you understand what I'm intending to say. And I want you to ask me if it's not clear. Right. Um, and that's a real, that's a, that's a shift right? For, for people who are on the command and control leadership style of the spectrum, right? They're the opposite of servant leaders. So, so, you know, John and I really fall into like that servant leader category where we're really focused on the way of the many, right? Whereas command and control leadership is a style of leadership that's neither good nor bad. It's just a different style. And if you are a command and control leader who likes to give orders, what I'm describing may not work well for you because it's going to seem really disingenuous. And so I don't want people to think that they should be swinging the pendulum all the way over to servant leadership. That's actually not authentic, right? Yeah. You have to take the little steps and you have to say, hey, my intent is that I'm trying to be a better communicator. This might sound awkward the way I'm approaching it. Can I try something different? And so conveying your intent when you do a modality shift is really important, right? Right. The other thing is questioning yourself, your assumptions, your beliefs, right? Like reality lies in each of our own brains and experiences. My reality is not your reality. Your reality is not John's reality. John's reality is not Kyle's reality. Like we all experience the same thing differently. And, and when we can question our own view of that, then we can be open to more opportunities. And the more we're open to opportunities, the more we create a diverse perspective of approaches. And we know, we know the data proves time and time again that diversity of experience, diversity of voice, diversity of background, diversity of capabilities, all of those things lead to more in- innovation and better value. Hmm. 
what's 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 I think really interesting about this is that what seems to wrap around I think this whole discussion is is that um you just touched on it there is that the way in which we look at the world and the way in which we perceive the world I think a lot of people will just essentially take what their brain gives them you know and say okay well that's how I understood this therefore that's the way it is and I think what you're talking about is is that you can change that approach to how you interpret the world and how you understand the world and mm-hmm. how other people can help you to understand the world differently and then f- formalizing that in 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 a way into your intent and being explicit about your intent cuz you know your example earlier on of being in the meeting and what you intended and what actually manifested are two different things that happens every day right yep. <laughs> in so many different situations mm-hmm. and i and i i just i love the way you break this down um, it would be remiss if I didn't, before we wrap up, just, I'd love to just have you talk a little bit about, about Slim. I mean, yeah. you know, Slim's a, a, a new company. Um, so for those of you who are not in the technology infrastructure world, this, this may be go over your heads, <laughs> but many people who listen to this are. So talk a little bit about Slim. Yeah. So what I like to do is when I'm in a situation where I'm talking to a lot of different people who have different perspectives and different backgrounds, I like to say, okay, talk to me like I'm a fifth grader, right? And so so for me, if I were trying to like explain this to my to my son who's in second grade, I would say, okay, let me use language that is easy for you to digest because I want to make it simple. And so, you know, we Slim is built off of an open source tool called Docker Slim that's been around for a number of years. And that tool exists to help developers optimize what they're building as they're building it and deploying it into the cloud. And so it's a free tool. We've got tens of thousands of users, folks who have benefited from this open source tool. And open source, for those of you that don't understand it, is is available to anybody, anytime, everywhere. It is a, it is a free tool. And one of the things that's important about Slim is that we exist to create these tools to help developers be production ready faster and more efficiently. And so if we can help them optimize their, their containers, then we can, we can live our mission, right? Yeah. And one of the reasons that we believe this deeply is John and Kyle have spent their entire careers leading both small and medium and large size engineering teams and, and production teams. And we want to be able to put the power back in the hand of the individual developer. We want them to be able to move faster. We want them to be able to be more efficient. And then when we can do that for them, they can spend time solving cooler problems, right? So we want them to get more joy out of their work too. And so, you know, we consider ourselves, everyone in the organization to be a developer, regardless of what their function or their role is, right? We all exist to remove friction. Part of my role is to remove friction for the experience of the humans in the business, right? So I do that by, you know, understanding what do they need from a learning and development perspective. I do that by constantly questioning, hey, what was your experience when you onboarded in the HRIS system? Even though we do self-onboarding, how did that look and feel for you? What did you notice? What can I do to make that workflow easier for you, right? Yeah. So really, when we think about Slim as a business, it goes back to this concept of like, we're just super passionate about making developers' lives easier. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And 
you know, years ago when GitLab really first kind of came on to the scene, especially, you know, they really focused a lot on on not just building a business and building a great product, but but they also focused a lot on building an open and an accessible business. And you know, they published their company handbook and they're they're very open in how they operate their business. And I think they've they've acted as a really inspirational template for a lot of companies. Um, and I see the same kind of thing with Slim. I just I think that not only what you're building is amazing, but I think the way in which you're building it, the way in which you approach hiring people, the way in which you you create that culture, that you instill it, that you're always it's always a work in progress. I think is is tremendously inspiring, and I think you set such a wonderful example for for how many people who listen to this will will want to approach their own businesses as well. So I hope Jillian that you and John and Kyle and everybody else continues to talk about this because I think it's. It's 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 that is in real service, I think, to for how to help human beings work better together. So I really appreciate you coming on to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with what you said earlier. I, we we could continue this conversation for hours on end, and I would still <laughs> thoroughly enjoy it. <laughs> I know, I know. And where do people go and find out more about Slim? Where where where, where do you want to point them towards? So just go to slim.ai. That's our website. And AI stands for application intelligence, um, which it's important to to know that that's not artificial intelligence. It's application intelligence. We create intelligent applications to to make developers' lives easier. So slim.ai. Uh, you can also find the team on LinkedIn. You are welcome to reach out. I'm I'm always on LinkedIn responding to messages and requests. Um, I'm actually helping a friend of mine with uh, a startup that he's building. We're doing a, a process this week, and I'm helping him and his leadership team define their why. So before oh, cool. they before they come out into the world, um, you know, they're going to really refine why do they exist, and then that becomes the core foundation for everything that they do and every decision that they make. Wonderful. Well, I, I, I love the way your brain works, Jillian, and it's been a pleasure <laughs> having you on and all the best. Thank you so much. <laughs>